planetary scientist and Professor Lindy Elkins-Tanton is our guest today on this special bonus episode of the Next Education Workforce podcast. Everybody who works in the space industry, there's a little meme. They say to each other, space is hard, which is meant to be like a little understatement after some terrible thing happens. You launch this thing and you can't send a repairman. It has to work perfectly in space for decades without any repair. It's really hard to do space exploration. But I'm here to tell you, as someone whose two goals in life are education and space exploration, I think changing education is harder. If you've joined us for previous episodes, you know that I'm typically talking with educators around big ideas concerning school staffing. So why are we talking with a NASA scientist? I'm Brent Madden, Executive Director of the Next Education Workforce, an initiative at Arizona State University's Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College. In this work, I'm so lucky I I, I get to partner with schools and systems to launch a nationwide effort the transition from the normative one teacher, one classroom, unsuccessful, unsustainable model of staffing schools to, to one that is organized around teams of educators with distributed expertise who share a common roster of students. And when we do this work, we recognize that so many other fields, from healthcare to software engineering and, yeah, even space exploration, work on teams. And those teams allow the individuals to contribute complementary strengths, knowledge, skills, superpowers to the effort that's before them. Yet in education, teachers are often working alone without the support of a team. So what would happen if we peered into other professions and asked the question, how are they organizing themselves? What can we learn from them? And that is the reason that I've invited Lindy on the podcast today to share her experience with teams, innovation, and of course, learning both in education and interplanetary exploration. Welcome, Lindy. We're so glad to have you to this podcast. Do you want to just start by saying hello? You bet. First, Brent, thank you so much for having me. I'm Lindy Elkins-Tanton. I'm Vice President for the Interplanetary Initiative, and I'm a professor of planetary science at Arizona State University, obsessed with education and learning. And I'm also the lead of the NASA Psyche mission, a robotic mission to an asteroid. We're going to Definitely talk about that second part. Um, Before we go there, what about school or maybe not about school inspired you to pursue the path that you did as a, as a planetary scientist, as a, as a researcher, as an educator, any teachers or educators or, or people along the way that influenced you? I get asked a lot, when did you know that you wanted to lead a NASA mission? And I would say that would be pretty much the day we were selected. Like that was not, I started out life, I wanted to be a veterinarian. At some point I decided I want to go to undergraduate and study science. And I asked my high school math teacher, if he'd write me a college recommendation for MIT. And he said to me that he'd write it for me, but I would never get in. And then at the same time, my my English and my music teachers are very supportive of my efforts. And so, you know, maybe typical of many girls, I was not pushed in the direction of science when I was in high school. And I would just add that um, fast forward many years, and I'm a lecturer in mathematics at St. Mary's College of Maryland. And I taught mostly students who are getting ready to be teachers in elementary school. 
And so they were taking my math class as a distribution requirement. And I'd ask them all, how many of you are math phobic? And they would all raise their hand. And how many of you profoundly hope this is the last math you ever take? And they'd all raise their hand. And I'd ask them for homework just to write a paragraph about their formative math experience. And the majority answer, which I'm sure will surprise no one, was that in usually fourth or fifth grade, their math teacher made them feel stupid. So my math teacher didn't make me feel stupid until 12th grade, but it certainly did make me think maybe there's something I could do in this world so that people would stop having to feel stupid. <laughs> what happened at the end of the course to the young women that you were working with? Did their, their perspectives on mathematics change? Yeah, very often it did. It's so funny. It was really an early precursor of all this work that, in fact, we're all doing together in inquiry learning. I used to ask the students to form a little hypothesis that could test with some data. And the most common hypothesis after teaching this course, I don't know, eight times was I hypothesized that college students with more piercings and tattoos use more drugs. And then they would do this big survey and they would do a correlation on their data. So they're doing the math. And the answer is there is no correlation. Not any time was there ever a correlation between tattoos and piercings and drug use. And so with that kind of math experience, which is very personal and driven by the learner, a lot of times at the end of the class, the students would say, I want to make sure that my students never feel like they're afraid of math because it turns out you don't have to be afraid. Oh, that's perfect. And as a father of an eight-year-old daughter, that makes me incredibly happy to hear and hopefully inspiring to lots of our listeners who are here because they're really interested in this idea of the way we staff our schools. Um, with whom do we staff them? How do we organize those adults around learners? How do we empower learners to, in some way, self-direct their own learning? And to some of this work is this notion that we're building teams, teams of yes. educators. Yep. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on the way that teaming has influenced or played a role in your life, both as a scientist and also as an educator. I'm so excited that you asked me this question because I think that teaming is actually the thing that's motivated me most in my life. I realized that I've pursued the jobs where I can work in teams with people that I care about and where organizations are trying to create a whole that's bigger than the parts. Like to me, that is the fundamental human experience is working in teams. And I remember when Carol Basile, when your dean first talked to me about next education workforce, and I was so excited because it just felt like the most authentic way to learn. You know, I think about our, our psyche, our NASA psyche mission team, which is maybe 500 people right now. And I think the common thought is that it's scientists and engineers. And for sure, we have scientists and engineers. Of course we do. But we also have financial people and schedulers and marketers. And we have got project managers, social media experts. We have writers and artists. This was a big inspiration for me in thinking about education because our space missions are really for any big project that humans have ever attempted. Many disciplines are needed for success. And so for school to prepare students for life, school has to have interdisciplinary teams with shared goals because that's what it is to be, to be human. And I would add one other thing about that. It's a huge force for equity. When everyone on the team has their own expertise that's different from other people's expertise, but needed for the goal. And that way, it doesn't matter if you're younger or your skin color is different, you come from a different neighborhood, your gender, your expertise is needed and you're valued. So I love that also as a force for equity. That resonates very deeply. You've worked on a ton of teams over the course of your career. What about them has been really hard? 
Oh my gosh. There are always really hard things when you're trying to achieve something. Two answers leap to my mind immediately. One of them is when not everyone has bought into what you're trying to do. And we ran into this problem on the Psyche team um, this year. We missed our launch, our ideal launch. We're hoping that we'll get to launch next year because a part of our team didn't buy into the culture that I was trying to sell and promote. The culture where every person gets to speak up and talk about what's wrong and they get listened to. And it turns out in part of the team, they were afraid of failure. They were afraid of having people speak up and, the, and that team was a little bit silenced and they were the ones in trouble and we didn't know they needed help. And so that's maybe the most painful teaming experience I will ever have in my entire life, that one. And I learned a really important lesson, which was, the silent part of the team is the part of the team that needs help. Sometimes you might think if they're quiet, they're doing okay, but that is not the case. You know, I suspect it's true in the classroom too. I mean, I feel that way about the students who are really silent or the ones who feel like they can't quite ask their question or they're a little lost or they don't feel like they belong. Well, it turns out it's the same thing with teams. I wonder, I bet that you have run into that with your teaching teams. A hundred percent. A lot of it does, I think, come down to whose voices are being heard and what have we done to build a culture to ensure that that's just part of what we do and how we operate. And whether that's the students speaking up or it's it's the educators themselves feeling like they have voice to help guide and direct. Again, I like this idea, though, of coming back to a big a big goal or a big idea, you know, that we're trying to achieve. And when we think about this in the, the classroom, you know, the easy answer is, oh, we just need to, you know, make sure that kids are prepared based on whatever yeah. set of, you know, academic standards. In, in your opinion, what are we preparing young people to, to know and be able to do throughout their K-12 experience? So many schools and teachers are doing fantastic, much more innovative and human-centered things. But the traditional school, if you think of the sort of stereotype in your mind, the students sit still and they accept content from the teacher, and then they give it back on a test. And and I would assert that those not only are those skills not useful for later life, they're actually the opposite of what you need to succeed in later life. You need to question the information that comes your way. You need to be able to use it in different methodologies. You have to not have learned helplessness where you wait for someone to tell you what to do and how to do it and what the answer is. We see students come to college who, in the search of an answer, have only ever read pre-curated readings from textbooks where they are responsible for every sentence and they are completely undone by having to read three pages to find a partial answer to their question and try to wade through what's relevant and what's not relevant. And so we love to teach using a big shared goal or a vision the same as kind of we do in our goal in our teams when in later life when we're trying to achieve something and we let to the most part we let the students set what that goal is so that everyone's trying to understand some really big question over the course of this semester. And under that umbrella, we teach all those other skills, how to ask great questions, how to work in teams, how to have everyone speak up, how to communicate what you've learned, all the things you really do need to learn for later life, I would assert. <laughs> uh, it turns out, right? I don't know how much our listeners might know about Beagle learning. Can you just paint a picture for us as we talk about bringing teams of, of educators with distributed expertise around common rosters of students? It's not to, you know, open up your books to page 56 and answer the questions at the end of the chapter. Like, that's not right. the point. We have this commitment to deeper and more personalized learning. And I feel like Beagle gets at that in some really interesting ways. So if you could paint the picture of what is Beagle learning and, and what are you trying to achieve with this 
particular pedagogical tool? Thank you for asking. And it's so dear to my heart. I, you know, I would say the backstory is as a family, me and my husband and my son started talking about meaning in life and virtue in work. What is a virtuous career? What should we be spending our time doing? We started talking about it about 20 years ago when my son Turner was about 10 years old. Over time, we decided that education was the most important thing you could do for humanity. And for me, and for really, I'm sort of speaking on behalf of all of us, something that drives us is the idea of a society of people who have a sense of agency. Imagine... If everybody in our society felt they could spot the unsolved problem and know that they themselves had the capacity to take some kind of steps towards solving them, I think we would be in a different world. So then, uh, I don't know when it was, maybe about seven years ago, the three of us, and then quickly joined by a fourth founder, um, Carolyn Bickers, our wonderful fourth founder, started this little company, Beagle Learning, a little tiny tech company. And we developed a process for doing inquiry learning in teams in the classroom in a kind of a structured way so that the teacher doesn't have to freak out. Because I'll tell you, the students don't freak out. They love it. They love being able to pick their big learning goal, learn how to work in teams, always have each one has something new to bring every week to the classroom and share with their colleagues and the colleagues don't know their own special information. So this is what Beagle Learning is. It's an online platform to teach people how to do problem solving and communication. And we've taken this process, we can do it in the in the classroom without the online component, or you can do it fully online with no synchronous component. It totally works. I've been doing this myself for several years, just letting students choose their topic, learn how to research, learn how to discriminate among sources, learn how to build a mind map of all they know, how to decide when they know enough, skills that they need for their later life. And so we built this into uh, an undergraduate degree program here at Arizona State University called Technological Leadership. And it's a three-year program, which is meant to be entirely workforce-facing, to teach the students everything they need to be students as they hit the workforce to have agency and to know how to achieve uh, solutions to problems and to work in teams and ask the right questions. It's not something that would stand by itself as a major, but I think it's a fantastically helpful addition to the other teaching that we do. So you walk into, say, a high school that's using Beagle Learning, like paint for us the picture in that learning space. What you would see is students sitting in groups and each student in each group reporting to the other students the unique thing that that student learned in service of their larger learning goal. And they go around each circle and each student shares the thing that they uniquely learned. And every other student actually tends to be very interested because they're learning something they themselves did not learn. They're, they did different readings. And so they're bringing information collaboratively together like you would in the workspace and then summarizing it out for the larger class. And they would hand in summaries that they wrote of the readings that they did. So they're learning how to pick out the important points in a, in a segment of prose. They're learning how to write succinct sentences. They're learning how to assess their sources week after week. And then they decide what question they're going to pursue for the next week. And that often involves writing question ideas on a whiteboard and voting on them. What's the next question they should ask, the natural next question that will bring them one step closer to their big learning goal. And we've had students do incredible things. There was a high school student here in Arizona who decided that his big goal question for the semester was, how do I run my own construction company? And by 
goodness, he figured it out. He learned about bids and he learned about contracts and budgets and he learned about people management and he put it all together and that was his big semester project. Then he went to community college and then he started his company. That's, of course, the most perfect story that I could have to share to you, but the fact is it happened. And so that's the kind of thing we're trying to enable. I wish that I were in that learning environment, right, as a, as a, as a learner. One of the other things that I've observed in some of that is, is sort of the democratization. Everyone can have a question. Everyone's question is important and considered as part of this journey. Can you talk a little bit about how does this help develop in our learners this capacity to direct their own learning, to take the academic risks, to ensure that the people that are interested in learning and growing are not being shut down, but are instead uh, invited. That notion of being invited is really key. Ideally, in these classrooms, the, the big goal that you're pursuing over the semester is something that no one knows the answer to. It's probably something pretty complicated that there isn't a simple answer to. One semester that I taught here at the university, our question was, what will the moon look like after humans have settled it? And so there's a complicated question. You have science and engineering, but you also have sociology and psychology, and you have diplomacy, and you have international relations. And so there's a lot that goes into it. And the beauty of having a question that no one knows the answer to is it's not the teachers asking a question that is really a test in disguise because the teacher knows the answer and the students got to know it too, or they're going to feel stupid and they're going to be judged. In fact, every question that everyone asks is a genuine one and anyone who knows an answer is encouraged to share it. So it's, it's truly learning together collaboratively. And it's also learning at your own pace because no matter what the topic is, the discipline that you're in trying to answer this big question for the particular week, there's going to be somebody who knows a little more about it and plenty of people who know a lot less. And so you never have to feel like it's bad to be ignorant. As teachers, you know, we end up setting up a culture where students feel like they failed if they don't know the answer already. But isn't not knowing the answer how we all want to start? Isn't that the natural state? And isn't that a lovely opportunity to then learn something? And so we're trying to turn the culture back that way to take away the fear and the judgment and instead put in place empowerment at your own rate. And of course, all of these things are experiments, but you know, we've been doing it for almost a decade now at all different levels and it really does work well. And it really, I think is incredibly similar and connected to your next education workforce where the adults in your classroom know different things. And in our university classrooms, we often have more than one professor, partly because it's just fun. Everyone wants to come to the classroom and participate in the conversation. So you get people with all sorts of different backgrounds adding what they know. If distributed expertise is important and you don't totally know where it's going to end right. up, how do you pick your team? Like who, who shows up? Well, I suppose that for every one of your teams and all the great schools that are working this way um, already, and for us and our teams, partly it is who shows up. Because what you want is somebody who wants to be engaged and bring whatever they have. And of course, sometimes we invite special speakers if we see an important topic coming or, you know, say I really do know more about the topic than my students, which is not always true, by the way. Um, but say I do. And then I can say, well, I know this person, Deborah, who would be so great to have come in because I think we're about to go in this direction. She could give us like a kickstart. But also, I think you've got to check your own teacher's fear at the door, because when we're trying to learn something for real in real life, we don't know all the answers. We're going to take missteps. There's going to be misunderstandings. 
understandings. We'll have gaps in our knowledge. You have to embrace that. And so it's okay for the teacher not to know the answer. In fact, it's way better if they don't know the answer. And you just take it like a real learning experience. You do your best. And then you find a really good source and you add to your knowledge and you take one more little step. What do you think would have to change in the larger educational ecosystem to allow teachers to operate in the ways that you're describing? What would need to change either in teacher preparation or in the larger society? How do we start to do the very important work that create the conditions for that sort of education to happen? Oh, my goodness. I wish I did know like the magic wand answer to this. I think the truth is education in the United States is, in the technical sense, a wicked problem. There are so many stakeholders with so many different incentives and reasons to want to keep things the way they are or push them in a certain direction. I really believe that a more open inquiry kind of circumstance in the classroom, at least for some of the time in education, is critical for our futures. And a lot of the reason that it's not being done is fear. There's the fear on the part of the teacher to stand up and not know the answer because a a lot of what a teacher can do, and goodness knows I've done it, stand up at the front and assert, I am your teacher. I know the answer. The answer is this. And you are right or you are wrong, according to my judgment. And to cede the judgment of rightness to a communal discussion is scary. It takes a lot of guts. And it helps a lot to have other people in the room, other adults in the room where you've all agreed that you're going to juggle the ball and support each other. That's way better than doing it by yourself the first time, which is very scary. Thank but you. But beyond that, right? Oh, it's critical. It's so critical. It's so scary to do it by yourself. And it's not just the, a conversation outside of the classroom with your peer cohort. It's people in the classroom with you at the time, like in the classroom. Really, really important that they're there with you with that positive eye gaze going, I've got your back. But then the other part of it is, the administration of the school has to back you up to. And so we've had the head of the school board come into the classroom and say to the teachers, I support you to do this. This is important. You can set aside your other fears. We'll reward you for being courageous. That's really important too. Wow. That's inspiring. Like that's the the, the sort of place that I that I want to work in, in, in the dynamism of the teams that you're describing is also really, really inspiring. You're bringing people on, you've got the cover from the administration, yeah. you've got the support of your colleagues, maybe they're with you all the time, maybe they're coming in, but it isn't an isolating and sort of lonely job. That's so well put. And I imagine that you must have feedback from the instructors that you and your teams work with, that the loneliness and isolation of the job is reduced under the model where you're with the team. 100%. And it, it turns out, right, as human creatures, we're programmed to yeah. want to be together. Completely. I've got like, just a couple more questions here. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a biologist by training. Uh, and so, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly interested in science and I would be totally remiss if we didn't just get a geek out for a second on the sort of the psyche mission. And what is it that you're doing? It turns out that NASA sometimes designs missions from the ground up, like the Mars rovers. Those are called flagship missions. But then there are other quite large Uh, programs that you can propose to as a scientist with a team you've put together. You can propose a space mission that you'd like to run for some fantastic science goal. And one of these programs is called the Discovery Program. So back in 2011, we started putting together a team to try to understand better the very first baby steps of the building of our rocky planets. 
where did those metal cores come from? How did they form? What did they look like? The metal core of our Earth that we know is there, but we can't ever, ever go visit. Way too hot, way too deep. So we worked on this for three years, and then we entered into the proposal process, which is unbelievably gigantic and rigorous and difficult. So we wrote a 250-page proposal made it to step two. That, so we competed with 27 other proposals and were down-selected to five, one of five. Then we were given another year to write a thousand-page proposal and all these other things. It was a long, long story. I'm telling you these little bits just so that you know. In 2017, when NASA called me and said, we've selected your mission, it was a huge deal. But it turned out that was just the starting line, right? It's 2017, okay, go. We won, we're done. No, wait, no, no. Well, now we get to start. <laughs> so, so then we started finishing the design and build of the spacecraft. And we've had over 2,000 people work with us to build this giant robotic spacecraft. It's built um, at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And the goal is to launch out of Kennedy Space Center in Florida on a SpaceX Falcon Heavy rocket. We hope to get the approval to launch next October of 2023. And the spacecraft will go off through space for a number of years and end up at an asteroid that's orbiting our sun way out between Mars and Jupiter that seems to be made mostly of metal. It'll be the first metal surface that humans have ever visited in the solar system because we've always visited things made of rock or ice or gas, but there are just a few things out there that are actually made of metal. So it's really fundamental exploration, and that's what we're trying to do. And the science of it is super exciting, but... I think the much more exciting part, and this will not surprise you that this is how I feel, is the inspiration to humankind that if we can do this, we can fix our problems here on Earth. I love the, the notion of inspiration for all of humankind. You know, many of the people listening here are people that are deep in this work of building new school models, new ways yeah. of organizing adults and kids around learning. What advice do you have to the people that are in the work that are doing something as complicated, right, as putting this mission into, into work or redesigning schools and staffing models to do way better by educators and kids? What advice do you have? For them, for us. Everybody who works in the space industry, there's a little meme. They say to each other, space is hard, which is meant to be like a little understatement after some terrible thing happens. I mean, you launch this thing and you can't send a repairman. It has to work perfectly. It has to work perfectly in space for decades without any repair. It's really hard to do space exploration. But I'm here to tell you, as someone whose two goals in life are education and space exploration, I think changing education is harder. Because in the end, it's the individual humans who make all the miracles and all the tragedies that ever happen. And people are so rooted in education to being taught the way they were taught, to being taught the way their parents were taught, that their kids should be taught the way they were taught. We want you to just memorize it. We don't want you to ask why is, a, is something we've heard a number of times in our family <laughs> from parents. And to explain to humans why it's better to be a free thinking person is a difficult, difficult task. I also think that sometimes people think it's easier to start a new institution than it is to change one that's existing. And I think that's absolutely true. And so to all of us who are out there actually trying to incrementally, incrementally improve our existing education system, I actually think that's the hardest job that there is. And also the very most important. That's a job in which you must never, never give up. That is probably the, the most true thing that has ever been spoken on this podcast. 
I would be remiss if I didn't ask this last question, uh, which I do of all of the people with whom I'm lucky enough to speak. And it is in the spirit of continuous learning. What should we be reading or listening to these days? Any Anything to leave us with? I totally have one for you. I recently listened as an audiobook to a book that I recommend so strongly. It's called, get this title, it's called Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes. What could this possibly be about? This is a memoir, and the reason I think you need to listen to it as an audiobook is because it's read by the author. He took his family into a remote part of the Brazilian rainforest to live with a very small tribe of people who were not joined to the technological future of the rest of South America. They were really living isolated in their own excellent way. And he learned their language with really no help because there are no guides to it. There's no books. And so he speaks in their language on the audiobook. That's why you want to listen to the audiobook. But here's the point of it. He took his whole family into this very remote and dangerous place to live with this very small and isolated group of people with the hope of converting them to Christianity. But that is not what happened. Instead, those people and their language and the structure of their language changed his entire outlook on life and language and thought and community and what it is to be humans. And I feel like this book is a template for better understanding other people. I really recommend it. What a gift. Don't Don't sleep. There are snakes. Don't sleep. There are snakes. That's what these people said instead of good night, sleep well. That's what the, that's what the people in the community say to each other. Not sweet dreams. They don't say sweet dreams. Oh, this is delightful. And so is this conversation. Lady, thank you so much for carving time out of throwing stuff into space and designing learning models for students that deserve uh, great, great teachers and for inspiring us. It's been such a treat to be with you. Thank you so much. I'm really, really grateful to be invited. And I so enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for all the thought you put into it. That was Lindy Elkinstan, Principal Investigator of the NASA Psyche Mission and Vice President of the ASU Interplanetary Initiative. If you'd like to hear more from Lindy, join us at the next Education Workforce Summit, where Lindy will be the keynote. It's virtual, and it's happening this February, 8th and 9th. We're going to have sessions from experts, K-12, research, policy, government, advocacy, nonprofits, ed tech. It's going to be a ton of fun. You can register and learn more at next.education.asu.edu. If you're interested in thinking differently about how we staff our schools, please join us in February 2023. Thanks for listening. Until next time, be well, be safe, and keep learning.